Hello, and welcome to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. President Donald Trump is pulling the U.S. out of the Paris climate deal, a move that has received worldwide condemnation. To give us her reaction and tell us what Canada should do to offset a U.S. pullout is Green Party leader Elizabeth May. Keeping with the Greens, it's been another major week in B.C. politics as the Greens there reach a deal to support a minority NDP government, effectively ousting Premier Christy Clark, although that hasn't technically happened yet. B.C. Green leader Andrew Weaver is here a bit later to explain his decisions and how he hopes to block the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Week one on the job for the newly minted Conservative leader Andrew Scheer is complete to talk about Scheer's surprising win, his start as leader, and the challenges that still lay ahead is his campaign chair and former MP, Chuck Straw. And finally, did the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band help some Canadian Indigenous people reconnect with their culture? We have that very interesting interview to end off our show and, of course, to mark the 50th anniversary of the release of that classic album. For your politics, for your power, and sometimes for your Beatles, welcome to The Hill. The United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. With that, President Donald Trump announced he is pulling the U.S. out of the landmark International Climate Change Agreement. Trump referred to the Paris deal as draconian and said while he's leaving the accord... He may also be open to renegotiating the U.S. terms or signing an entirely different deal. Now, the decision prompted swift condemnation from leaders around the world, including Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who called Trump to say he was disappointed and disheartened with the move. Uh, Trudeau also reaffirming Canada's unwavering commitment to our targets. To speak more about Trump's decision and what Canada should do moving forward about this, I was able to catch up with Green Party leader Elizabeth May in the foyer of the House of Commons. How did it personally make you feel? You were in Paris Mm -hmm. uh, along with government officials working on this deal. Mm -hmm. No, the the Paris Agreement is the culmination of decades of work. Uh, The reality is that Donald Trump can announce that the U.S. is pulling out. Uh, doesn't mean it's true. (laughs) The, the, uh, The terms of the Paris Agreement have exit provisions, and they can't be triggered until the agreement has been legally enforced for three full years. Now, it came legally into force November 4th of last year. So by November 4th, 2019, the U.S. can give one year's notice that they plan to leave by November 4th, 2020, which ironically is the day after the next presidential election in the States. So it's, it's it, what, what Trump was really saying was he's going to defy the legal requirements of the United States as a member of this treaty for what they should be doing. What it means for the world right now is that Donald Trump is signaling that nothing that comes out of the federal government will be positive for climate, uh, but he can't also control the fact that 30 U.S. states and many more U.S. cities are committed to delivering on the Paris commitments. Is a new deal even possible? He says he wants to try and renegotiate terms for the U.S.? No, that's not a chance in the world that unilaterally the United States can get close to 200 other countries to open up negotiations that were painstaking. I mean, it's not like we just negotiated at 
the Conference of the Parties in Paris. The, the, the negotiations uh, really began in 1990. That's when the negotiations began for what was signed in 1992, which is the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. That treaty, by the way, uh, the U.S. is still in. So in some ways, he, um, he's done minimal damage to the global system by concentrating on making a statement that isn't true, that the U.S. has exited Paris. He's essentially said, in four years... We'll be out of Paris. Uh, so be- but the impacts can be felt now if he stops any efforts yes. to try and reduce emissions on the federal level in yeah. the United States. Yeah. So how big of an impact is that? Because this is the largest economy in the world. Yeah. And if the federal government south of the border decides we don't want to take the measures that we had originally agreed upon and we're going to back all of our cash out of the green fund yeah. that was going to developing countries that we're going to get the assistance to help reduce right. their emissions, how big of an impact is is that to reaching the final goal? There's no question that it's a blow, uh, but it's not a surprise. I mean, the man did campaign on pulling out of climate action. This is horrific, but the damage that he can do is restricted to U.S. federal government action. Again, 30 U.S. states are committed to their reductions, and many, more than 100 U.S. cities. It will do damage, but at the same time, even where he wants to breathe life into the coal industry, for example. You can't do that by just decreeing it will be so, because the economics have changed quite a lot. They're not going to go back. It's as if someone in, in, the, in the earliest part of the 20th century, when Henry Ford came along, said, no, we will never give up the horse and buggy. Go away. I mean, technology is changing. Economics are changing. The market is changing. And the world is moving away from fossil fuels. And Donald Trump can't stop So the Trudeau government is disappointed with this change. What more can we do moving forward to offset the loss of the U.S. in this? Do you think we need to commit more funds to that green fund? Or maybe should we even, as a country, increase our targets to try and hit those points? Absolutely. All of the above, yes. That was my question today in question period to Minister of Environment and Climate Change, Kath McKenna. She didn't respond specifically to the the things that we should do. But it needs to be understood, which it hasn't been very well understood in Canada yet, that the climate targets under the Paris Agreement are expressed in protecting the whole world from very, very dangerous levels of global average temperature increase. The reality, which is, which is harsh, is that the current commitments from Canada and the U.S. before Trump announced he wanted to leave Paris, the level of commitment is far too weak to be able to meet the targets we set in the Paris Agreement. So, yes, we need to do more. We need to increase our own target. We're still, at this point, Canada as a whole is committed to the same level of climate action that existed under Stephen Harper. It hasn't been improved since the election. I think there's a lot more we can do to improve our own targets and work in concert with countries in the developing world to help them reduce their emissions faster than we can reduce ours. And Canadian companies could provide the innovations. Well, wouldn't it be cool? I mean, you can just see the ways that we can have a match-up of clean technology companies in Canada working in developing countries, assisting in in partnerships with the U.S. basically shirking its responsibilities. China is going to assume global leadership on climate action, which is something that I don't think people expected even five years ago. So we're looking at some very big shifts in terms of climate leadership. The European Union is going to stay one of those regions that does a lot. I'd love to see Canada 
equal the level of action of countries like Sweden or Denmark. I'd love to see us try to catch up with Germany uh, or keep up with China. Right now, we only look good on climate action when you compare us to Donald Trump. We need to do much more. That was Green Party leader Elizabeth May speaking about Donald Trump's announcement he will be pulling the U.S. out of the Paris climate deal. Now, as we mentioned earlier, Canada does remain committed to following through with its plan, including a national price on carbon. But that has raised some obvious questions. If Canada imposes new taxes or a cap-and-trade system and the U.S. doesn't, will companies and jobs then flee to the U.S.? For insights, we turn to McGill University economist Chris Reagan. He chairs a group of economists called the Eco-Fiscal Commission, which advocates for bringing economic thinking to environmental policy, including putting a price on carbon emissions. Reagan spoke with McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes, and he starts out here by talking about the basic issue when it comes to carbon pricing and prosperity. You know, competitiveness is a really important issue, and it was a really important issue on November 7th. Uh, you know, the United States was nowhere near a, um, you know, a nationwide carbon price. And on November 8th, they're nowhere near a nationwide carbon price. So, I mean, competitiveness was always going to be an, an issue for any Canadian jurisdiction that was going to put on a carbon price. And so they had to think about how are you going to deal with your cement firms, or your steel firms, or your fertilizer manufacturers, because you're going to raise their costs. Nobody's going to raise the costs of the rivals um, the, the, against which they compete. So you got to think about that. That was an issue pre-Trump, and it's an issue post-Trump. The other thing I would say is it's funny to me that people think this is such a, you know, they say it's crazy. It's crazy for Canada to do this policy and, you know, unless the U.S. is doing it too. Well, hold on. We have a completely different healthcare system, right, that is funded largely from taxes. Mm-hmm. That doesn't seem to be creating a competitive disadvantage for Canada. It's actually a very good policy. In fact, some people would argue it's a competitive advantage for some Canadian firms. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can design our policy to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. We can, we can have carbon prices that are, you know, kind of differently designed in different provinces. As long we do have to think about the competitiveness issue, but we, you know, the current policies in place are thinking about this. They're taking it seriously. Alberta has a, a system of output-based allocations. Ontario and Quebec have a system of of, uh, of giving back some fraction of the of permits for free uh, to the emissions-intensive sector. That's this is all about dealing with the competitiveness issue. So to people who say we can't do this, I say, well, you're wrong. It's that simple. So, so I mean, we just can you can you give an example? How does the I should know this, but how does the Alberta system work on on output-based? Uh, so uh, the so the Alberta system that, that by the way is not yet in place. So it will be in place by the beginning, I believe, of next year, believe, yeah. beginning of 20, 2018. But basically, what it says is, is if you're a large final emitter, so you're an oil sands producer or your cement producer or your steel producer or something like that, you will um, you will face a carbon price. Okay, but you will also get a credit based on your output, not your Im- output of emissions, but your output of steel, mm. okay, or output of whatever. Mm. So you pay the carbon price, and you therefore have an incentive to reduce your emissions. But we're going to give you a credit, which is a function of your output. So it's basically, think of this as kind of a cash rebate that goes straight to the firm's bottom line that says, oh, you are worried about your profitability falling because of this carbon price? Mm. Well, we're going to make you pay the carbon price, but we're going to give you this credit back so your profitability isn't going to be hurt so much. And, mm. if, you know, depending on how you compute this, maybe your profitability won't be hurt at all. Um, so you so still have an, sorry to interrupt, so you still have an incentive to cut your carbon emissions because that is, after all, being taxed 
or, or being there's a price been put on it. But at the end of the day, if it turns out that you can't actually um, do do that or you know, absorb that price and remain competitive, so well, you're getting a little kickback at the end of the day anyway to try to help you out on that on that end of it, on the bottom line end. That's so, right. That's that right. Works? That's yeah, okay. that's right. And you have an incentive to reduce emissions because that's where the price is, right? Mm -hmm. So if you could if you maintain your steel output um, unchanged but reduce your emissions, you would save the carbon tax. Okay, if you could actually keep your emissions flat, so that's one way to think about this, right? If you yeah. keep your steel output unchanged, but you reduce your emissions, you save money because you avoid the tax. So there's an incentive to reduce emissions. If you could maintain your emissions constant, but increase your steel output, you'd get more of a credit because right. the credit is a function of your steel output. So it's kind of like a, it's a carbon price combined with an output subsidy. That's what's going on in the Alberta system that's under design now. And that is exactly the same way to think about the free permits in Ontario and Quebec. Those firms are facing a carbon price, but they're being given free permits. Well, a free permit is just given, is just has cash value equal to the carbon, carbon price, right? So in a world of a carbon price of $17, if I give you a free permit, it's like giving you $17 because you could turn around and sell it in the market for $17. Right. But I'm going to give you those permits for free based on your output of steel. And that doesn't undermine so, the purpose of the carbon price to begin with, eh? Well, it, 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 what it does is it says we want you to reduce emissions, not by getting smaller, but by getting cleaner. Hmm. So what we don't want is for, to reduce emissions in Canada or Ontario, let's say, because we close down the steel sector, right? Hmm. That's not the goal, hmm. right? Because what we don't want is to close down the steel sector there and then just start importing steel from Pennsylvania, right? Hmm. That's crazy. Because and that globally would do nothing to emissions. What you're trying to do is you're trying to reduce emissions in Canada because we start producing things differently, not because we produce less stuff. That was McGill University economics professor Chris Reagan in conversation with McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes. Still to come on McLean's On the Hill, we're joined by BC Green leader Andrew Weaver to talk about pipelines and his decision to crown the NDP as the next provincial government. Andrew Shear's campaign chair discusses how they won the conservative leadership and we let you know how the Beatles may have helped Indigenous Canadians. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. Coming up on the show, now that Andrew Scheer is the new Conservative leader, his campaign chair talks about their winning strategies and the challenges ahead. Later, we hear how the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band may have helped Indigenous Canadians reconnect with their culture. But first... A major political shift in B.C. has sent shockwaves across the country and put a big federally approved project at risk. After a very close election result, the B.C. Greens announced this week that they would be supporting the NDP instead of Premier Christy Clark's Liberals. That should allow the New Democrats to form a slim minority government. But since Clark had already been asked to form the next government by the Lieutenant General, she will be testing the confidence of the House. And she says she is willing to lead an opposition if her government falls in a vote. While this is thrilling stuff for provincial politics, the Trudeau government has also taken note since both the Greens and NDP say they want to stop the Kinder Morgan pipeline. The feds have said they stand by this controversial project, with the Prime Minister adding the facts and evidence don't change just because the B.C. government does. 
well, to talk about his big decision and what comes next in terms of blocking the pipeline, BC Green leader Andrew Weaver joins me for a quick chat over the phone. So, Mr. Weaver, why did you choose the NDP instead of the Liberals as the party you wanted to prop up in the BC government? Well, ultimately, uh, we, we had very fruitful negotiations, first off, with both parties, and we were very close with both parties. Ultimately, I went back to the reason why I got into politics in the first place. It came down to the inability of us to reach agreement with the BC Liberals in terms of climate policy. We had, we had insurmountable barriers with respect to things like Kinder Morgan, uh, carbon pricing was, was on the table, uh, Site C Dam, and, 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 and others. So ultimately, it, it was being true to who I am and the reason why I got into politics. As, uh, and uh, going back, you know, I, I took a look at the mirror and said, Andrew, why... Why, why, why did you get into politics in the first place? And I had to be true to that. I could not sway from that, uh, even though it was... The, and so, so, so we could have... We've, we, so that ultimately is the reason. We got a lot of uh, our economic agenda into the BC NDP plan because we felt that their uh, economic agenda was lacking, and uh, we're pleased with that. What are the next steps? Wh- wh- where do you go from here if you want to make the NDP the next government? So we have a, a process with the next steps. The next steps is the Premier has said she will recall legislation soon. Uh, the MLAs get sworn in next week, by and large, and so we expect the legislature to be recalled in the, towards the 19th or uh, third or third, fourth week of June, at which point the BC Liberals, uh, under Premier Clark's leadership, will put forward a throne speech. That throne speech then is either voted on early uh, or it is amended and the amendment is voted on. And that throne speech is a motion of confidence. Uh, The BC Greens have said that we believe that uh, it's time for a change. We will vote in non-confidence with the government, uh, with the NDP, and at that point the parliament will dissolve and uh, the lieutenant governor will have a choice. She'll have a choice to listen to uh, the accord that we put forward to her, saying that we are ready to form government and make it work, or she could call an election. What's to stop Premier Clark from basically looking at your document, giving you everything that you wanted from the NDP and putting that in the throne speech, kind of throwing you through a loop where you'd have to vote against everything that you're hoping to get with the NDP. Well, I'm uh, reasonably confident that that's probably what they'll do. Is uh, I suspect they're going to make it very, very difficult for us. And, 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 you know, we'll see what's in that throne speech. I, I, I don't know whether we'll see take the, the, the positions that we have with respect to taking steps to do what we can to stop the uh, Kinder Morgan expansion in light of the fact that there's still many conditions that haven't been met. I, I question whether we would, uh, whether they would start to abandon their, their movement down the path towards liquefied natural gas and instead we'll focus on the, the emerging economy. They'd have to talk about site C. You know, I, I, I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised to see a lot of that because, as I said, ultimately, there, there's a lot of commonality in the legislature because in, in all sides and, and where the differences were, um, we perceived them to be insurmountable. And if they all came back in the, carpet, in the uh, throne speech, it would be a clever political um, move on the behalf on, on the side of the premier. Um, it would also put us in a very difficult situation. But we'll, uh, we'll uh, cross that bridge when it comes. So Trans Mountain Pipeline, it's a big issue um, federally, not just uh, there in B.C., but what measures do you actually have to stop this? Is it just delaying um, permits and trying to take 
Kinder Morgan and the federal government to court? Well, delays for the sake of delays are not, you know, the, the death of a thousand paper cuts. That's not in anyone's best interest. You know, what, what I participated as an intervener in the NEB process, it was clear to us, to those who participated, that the process was flawed. Mr. Trudeau campaigned in the last election on, re, on rebuilding trust in the NEB assessment process, and he had promised to do that with the, with the, with the Trans Mountain uh, proposal, and he didn't. He didn't deliver on that. So there are, there are fundamental errors in that process that I think we we, uh, we have a right to challenge. So I, I suspect that there's a very strong case um, that, uh, you know, that the, we'd go to work with the Attorney General to, to examine the actual process to see itself, to see whether or not uh, the process actually ha- was, was following due diligence. There's also 37 conditions that the BC government has, which uh, have to be, uh, many of which have to be signed off in the province, and, and some of them are, are pretty strong with respect to Indigenous rights and title, and some of them involve a spill responses. There's, there's many, many avenues here. First and foremost, the reality is we cannot clean up diluted bitumen if there was, if not, if when there's a spill. So it is reckless for the federal government and to, to drive this through our coastal waters. Diluted bitumen in the presence of suspended particulate matter, of which there is no shortage in, in coastal BC waters, sinks and cannot be cleaned up. And so this, these are the risks that we're not simply not willing to, 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 to take here in British Columbia. All right, thank you very much. That was BC Green leader Andrew Weaver speaking about his choice to back the NDP instead of the Liberals for the next BC government and how that new government should try to block the controversial Kinder Morgan pipeline. Still to come on McLean's On the Hill, we will be speaking with the campaign chair of Andrew Shear's successful bid for Conservative leader. And later we hear how the Beatles, yes, the Fab Four, helped Indigenous Canadians. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. Still to come on the show, we have an interesting interview with a former First Nations chief who says a classic Beatles album helped him and other Indigenous Canadians get back in touch with their culture. But first, the federal conservatives have a new leader. Andrew Scheer was picked last weekend by party members to take over from former Prime Minister Stephen Harper in the full-time job, of course, in the interim that was filled in by Ronna Ambrose. Andrew Scheer narrowly defeated Maxime Bernier, who up until that point was the perceived front-runner. Now, since then, Scheer has given a rally to the troops in a speech to his caucus. Uh, He's also led question period for the opposition, although his first toe-to-toe with Prime Minister Trudeau hasn't happened yet since the PM was traveling abroad for the G7 and NATO summits, as well as a trip to the Vatican to meet the Pope. Now, it's it's been a week since Scheer's big win, but some are still asking, how exactly did he do it, especially when Kevin O'Leary was tossing all of his support behind Maxime Bernier. Well, here to talk about this is Chuck Strahl, a former MP and cabinet minister in the Harper government. He was also national chair of the Sheer campaign. He wrote an insider's account for McLean's magazine of how the final days of the campaign worked out. Uh, Chuck Strahl, thank you very much for joining us. Well, good to be here. Thank you. So tell us, how did Sheer do it? How did you pull this <laughs> off when everyone thought that Bernier was going to win? Well, it's a little bit of slow and steady wins the race, I think. Uh, you know, it's uh, 
you can all, I've always said in a, in a campaign, you can always get yourself headlines. You know, the trouble is you get headlines, uh, if they're the wrong kind, you end up with, you get stereotyped or pigeonholed, and then it's pretty hard to grow your support outside that initial impression. So uh, Andrew Style is, is very, you know, he's a thoughtful guy, and he's, uh, he's been at it, for a young man, he's been at it for quite a while. So he's not, he's not a flash-in-the-pan kind of guy. He's not uh, an O'Leary kind of guy, if you will. He's not going to give you uh, a, a provocative uh, quote that will get him in trouble later on. So I think slow and steady is how he started off and then uh, added enough uh, material, enough policy, and, uh, and a lot of organization behind the scenes that uh, was able to pull it off. You do talk, though, about the get-out-the-vote campaign that Shear had and some of the advantages that he may have had over uh, other candidates like Bernier in terms of his position on supply management. So what were the smaller things that were done in this campaign that in those final days that really helped put Shear over the top? I mean, it was less than 1% that divided Bernier yeah. and Shear. Well, that and it certainly was no sure thing. That's That's for sure. <laughs> but it was... You know, in the two or three weeks before uh, the cutoff for voting, uh, the dairy farmers in Quebec and Ontario, both their organizations got behind Shear officially. And that kind of set the, the tone for that particular group of conservative uh, voters. Uh, there was also, uh, in our case, uh, an entire ground campaign. In fact, we put together parties, if you want to call it voting parties, where they could come and photocopy their ID, make sure they got their, their vote in and counted. And we did that, did that across the country in um, in 70 different locations. You know, so it's a, it's a real effort to get the vote out. And if you know, for some campaigns, that was less important. They were they were more interested in in a get, grabbing a headline somewhere. And headlines are good, and and there's nothing wrong with that. But you also need a ground game, and the ground game in this kind of a race is uh, on election day. It all comes down to it's just a numbers crunch. You know, you got to get your your folks there. The other thing, if I could just throw in, is that you know throughout the campaign, uh, Andrew was never the guy that that was going to bell the cat and call somebody you know names or or um, or run somebody into the ditch. It just it's not his style. And on the, and again, in this kind of a race where you're you rank people one through ten, uh, Andrew was a lot of people's second choice as well. I guess nice guys finish first in that regard. <laughs> well, in this case, you know, it's absolutely true. I told uh, told Andrew when we started, I just, I just want to be proud of this campaign when it's done. I want to, I don't want to have to apologize for what's been said or, or, uh, or something that a staff member said that was, that was over the top or outrageous. You know, I want to be, I want to be proud. And at the end. I think that's one of the reasons he won, is he didn't have to apologize for things that he'd said. What's your take on these vote discrepancy issues? Yeah, my understanding of that is that, the, is that what happened is that the numbers that aren't quite uh, adding up, if you will, is, is because the, the party sent out to all of the candidates, candidates the numbers that the, at the last minute, if you will, the last couple of days before the, the final cutoff and said, these are the numbers. But that's not that wasn't the cutoff for the voting. People were still allowed to vote at the convention. They were still allowed. Some people FedExed their their vote directly to headquarters and so on. But what the party had in their possession, they forwarded to all of the candidates in case they wanted to contact them and and try to woo their vote and so on. So the difference between the two numbers is really that last couple of days of of people who went made extraordinary efforts to get their vote in. They either 
you know, delivered it by in person to the Toronto Convention. There was a couple thousand people there, or they they like some of the people I know that actually delivered it in person to uh, FedEx or somebody and got it delivered in person. So the discrepancy is really in that last couple of days, and it's not there's nothing nefarious. It's just that the party didn't have those in their possession. They couldn't transfer them. Or, or let other people know about them because they didn't have them until the last minute. So those ones just got added into the pile, and they were they were all legitimate. It's just that they couldn't forward them, if you will, forward that information to all of the candidates on that last day. How much did the social conservative vote, if you will, uh, help Andrew Shear get that push over the top, uh, along with the supply management vote that you had already mentioned? Um, but, you know, it, it appeared that the supporters of Brad Trost and Pierre Lemieux uh, did go to Andrew Scheer in the end. Some, some of that vote uh, went to Andrew, but other, the other half of it went to Mr. Bernier, because that libertarian vote is, is also attractive to social conservatives who often say, you know, I don't necessarily want to win. I just want to make sure that my point of view gets heard. And what Andrew stressed during the campaign is that is that you know we, we can never guarantee that we'll win when conservatives are united, united, but we can guarantee we'll lose if we're not united. In other words, you, you know, you, there are lots of things in common: social conservatives, libertarians, fiscal conservatives, uh, constitutional conservatives, democratic reformers, all, all all kinds of conservatives. If they're united, have got a shot at forming the government. If you hive off into silos and say, "Listen, it's my way or the highway. It's it's uh, you know it's 100 percent pure my way of being a conservative, or else, or else I'm not interested." Say, "Well, you can do that, but you will never win, and you'll never get anything that you want because the other side will always win." And uh, Andrew made unity a big part of his pitch, and so social conservatives were comfortable enough, as were libertarians, as were farmers, as were economic conservatives and, and people all over the map, enough of them said, you know, we, we can see ourselves reflected in the party with Andrew's leadership. What do you think of Shear's first week? Has he performed well? Do you think, I mean, obviously people in Ottawa were paying attention, but the grander public, do you think people really paid attention? Do you think he's made the kind of blip that uh, you were hoping for? Well, you, you, I mean, the thing is, in, in uh, you know, I've always said that Ottawa's really two square miles surrounded by reality. And for most people, reality is not the House of Commons. You know, so if the idea was you're going to get elected and and you're going to set the world on fire by showing up at question period, that's never going to happen. And so what he has to do is, is create an impression. Well, two things he has to do. One is he has to unify the troops, which I think he's he's got off to a good start on that. You know, I've heard nothing but good vibes from uh, how he's handled himself, how he's handled his his other leadership candidate opponents and how they're all seem to be, uh, you know, happy as a clam at high tide. But the, the other part is you create an, over time you create an impression. And uh, what you want is, is an impression that you have, you know, you're on top of the issues that you've got uh, good ideas or, or unique ideas on the issues that you're well-informed, well-spoken. And then, uh, you know, there's a whole, again, there's a whole nother ground game that's going to go into this over the next couple of years. But, but I think for the first week, uh, not that anyone expected him to, to uh, I mean, you, you can't even compare him to Trudeau because Trudeau wasn't even in the House of Commons. So I think for, for the first week, uh, given expectations and the fact that he's uh, he's been campaigning hard for a year now, 
Uh, I think he did well, and it's just exactly where he needs to be uh, as he readies for what's going to be really the grueling life of an opposition leader as he tries to to permeate the body politic with his ideas, but it's not going to happen in week one. What are the challenges, the real challenges that that, uh, Scheer faces moving forward here in trying to establish himself as a leader uh, a, a viable alternative, if you will, to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. What are his biggest faults or challenges? Well, I, it was interesting. Uh, this morning, Angus Reid came out with a survey that they had done, I thought it was very well done, on on what's the available voters for a Conservative Party. You know, there's, there's a third of the people say they will never vote. You could... You know, there's a third of the people out there that if you if you walked on water, they would complain that you couldn't swim. You know, so there's a third of the people that will never vote for you. And there's no use talking about them or talking to them. They'll never vote for you. They've said that they're they're genetic, uh, you know, liberals or NDPers and and so on. But in the other two thirds of the available vote, there's a there's a bunch of common issues. And this is what Andrew has said from the beginning, is that if conservatives are to be successful, what they're going to have to do is appeal to people on those, on things that uh, that they have in common. So there's, you know, if if the objective, and there were certain people in the campaign, leadership campaign that thought like this, they said, if the objective is I'm going to narrow cast and I'm going to get people who don't like immigrants, for example, and I'm going to appeal to them, you say, well, you can, you can do that, but you can never win an election like that. You know, it's, it's not, it's not what the conservatives are about. Uh, there's some people out there that will that may or may not, you know, support a particular candidate, but you can never win an election like that. And that's why Andrew's always said, and Andrew and the Angus Reid poll kind of shows this. There's some issues that people will broadly agree on. You know, they want you to keep a line on on spending. They want you to keep their taxes reasonable. They don't want you know big corporate subsidies to people that that have connections to the government. They, you know, they don't want. They want you to fight terrorism. Uh, where it's happening, not uh, waiting till it comes on the Canadian shores, and so on. There's a, there's a, some common themes that uh, that I think you can win on. And then, of course, demographically, uh, you know, Andrew has to appeal to people in his own age group. I mean, he's he's seven years younger than Prime Minister Trudeau, but certainly in that age group, in the 30s, 40s, you know, the, that's where uh, conservatives need to make inroads. We've we've got excellent support in you know people that have of uh, greater life experience shall we say but you know we ha- we have to make inroads into that millennial group and into the into the boomer group that uh, that are broad enough to to form a government so i think the votes are available to us it's just that you uh, you know we have to have a campaign and we have to have a way of communicating that makes sure it's broadly appealing now, Andrew Scheer um, has said that he doesn't want to reopen the debates around gay marriage or abortion, but his viewpoints, his personal viewpoints on this and, and his uh, previous voting record have been clear. Uh, so do you think that that's going to harm his, uh, you know, his appeal to those demographics that you just discussed? Well, I don't, you know, I don't think so. I mean, it's he's made it quite clear how he how he'll handle those situations, and it's it's as, as you describe. But, you know, it's a, I, I remember back to when I was in the House of Commons when, you know, liberal stalwarts like Anne McCullen, who was, uh, you know, ex-cabinet, ex-deputy uh, premier, prime minister of the country, uh, she voted uh, the same way as Andrew Scheer on the definition of marriage at the time. 
Because at the time, you have to think, you know, this is going back now some years. And at the time, that was, you know, it was a debate about how to do it and how to do it fairly and what's going to do. But as Andrew said, that, that horse has left the barn. That's not, that's not an issue for conservatives. We, we dealt with it at our last convention. Uh, you know, we, we had a debate, uh, what's, what should, on, for example, on the definition of marriage, uh, we've, uh, the party has moved ahead with the consensus definition, which is the one that's currently in place that is supported by the courts. And that, as Andrew says, that's where we're at and that's what we're going to support. That was Chuck Strahl, a former MP and cabinet minister in the Harper government, who is also national chair of the campaign that made Andrew Scheer the new leader of the Conservative Party. Coming up after the break on McLean's on the Hill, we'll let you know which classic Beatles album may have helped some Indigenous Canadians get back in touch with their culture. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. As Beatles fans all over the world already know, this week marked 50 years since the release of the Fab Four's landmark LP, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. The milestone led to lots of celebration and rumination on the significance of Sgt. Pepper. But amid all that commentary, the perspective of Manny Jules, the influential former chief of British Columbia's Kamloops Band, a member of the Shoe Swap Nation, really stands out. Jules is a truly devoted Beatlemaniac. He has a huge collection of memorabilia and, of course, all the records. But beyond that, Jules brings a perhaps surprising insight on the influence of the British rock band on Indigenous culture here in Canada. A few years back, McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes happened to speak informally with Manny Jules about the Beatles. So on the Sgt. Pepper anniversary, John caught up with him by phone to get some of those thoughts on the record. Just a note, Jules spoke over the phone from an airport, so there's some background noise. But he starts off talking about just how big Sergeant Pepper is in the history of pop culture. Well, it's 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 you know it's, it's the first album really that was considered art. Yeah. Uh, you know the the album jacket itself, which was gatefold, which in, back in the mid '60s was pretty rare. You know, it had the lyrics on it. It had, you know, didn't have the names of all of the people. You had to kind of guess and uh, hope that you were right. Uh, <laughs> but it's just, a, it's just a phenomenal piece of artwork, and the music itself. Like for me, uh, my favorite, favorite Beatles song is "A Day in the Life." Oh, it's, it's just a like, song. It, it, yeah, it's just, and the ending with the, you know, the, the, I think it was three or four of them were sitting at the piano and did that long outro. Uh, I think it's just a fantastic piece of artwork. How many Sgt. Pepper things do you think you have? Oh, I've got books, magazines, albums, 45s. I probably got over a hundred just, just on parodies. What's the best parody cover? Like who did the cleverest parody of the cover? Well, it, it has to be Frank Zappa. We're only in it for the money, you know, because it was, uh, you know, it was the first one. And, you know, I, I, I love them all, but that's my particular favorite. And uh, then the Beatles themselves, you know, there, there was uh, Japanese releases, Russian releases, uh, 
releases in all different countries. So I've got, you know, some from Mexico, Spain, uh, Japan, Germany, the Russian release, you know, uh, and, and some of the other ones I've got are really interesting. Before the Iron Curtain came down, they used to have uh, records on postcards, basically a flexi disc. So it was, you know, underground, but uh, I love those and uh, won't give them up. Gives an impression of how far flung the Beatles' influence was. Were you living? Where were you living when Sergeant Pepper came out? Oh, I was living on the reserve uh, in Kamloops. In Kamloops. Uh, like I said, yeah. So I, you know, I was 15 years old. Uh, we'd obviously heard about uh, the release of Sergeant Pepper. Uh, I usually bought my records on the weekend. Uh, but my my friend Jojo uh, brought it in the middle of the week, and we had to hear it right away. And in those days, you anticipated the release of every Beatles uh, album, forty five. You know, because a lot of times they were separate. You know, mm. you you couldn't get the the forty five on the album, and vice versa. So you had to collect them all. Manny, last year Ron Howard, the the film director, had a documentary uh, called uh, Eight Days a Week on on the Beatles sort of touring stuff. I don't know if you've had a chance to yes. see that. I, I I love it. I love it, it. It had a, a section where he talked about or he explored how the Beatles broke through yeah, among Black Americans and sort of African American culture in a way that white acts hadn't before. That basically suggesting that that Black people felt like the Beatles kind of were without a kind of racial or a cultural identity that they, they, they spanned all that or bridged it all. Is it too fanciful for me to ask, is, is that how you felt as a, as a, a First Nations guy growing up? Ken, did the Beatles seem like they were as much yours as anyone's? Well, they, they were they were truly everybody's, and you know they they came in with the long hair, and uh, you know it was a, we were as First Nations people were forced to have our hair cut, so for the first time we were able to begin to grow our hair again and have traditional aspects of, that were virtually banned for us. So they were very significant, and and once uh, once upon a time I always threatened to write a book on the Beatles' influence on modern Shushwap developments. What they did for me personally was really begin to free my imagination and think outside you know, the box. And uh, the Beatles, uh, through their music, through their art, through their lifestyle, uh, the way they you know, projected themselves. I, I'm not as flamboyant, obviously, <laughs> but I just, you know, they, they were freeing. They freed the imagination, and uh, I, I truly believe they helped bring down the the, uh, the Iron Curtain. I believe that they were a major cultural uh, force, not only for uh, blacks, uh, but First Nations people and all peoples right around the world. And this is embarrassing, I have to ask this, but I think you referred to, did you say Shishwap development? Like, what, what Shishwap, yeah. Shishwap, Mod- what, modern well, modern Shushwap developments. I'm a Shushwap. I'm Shuhwapmo. Oh, I see. That's so, your ethnic. That's your specific background. That's my tribe. Ah. That's my tribe. So I was thinking that well, it would be nice to put down on paper how the Beatles influenced us. You know, and and, uh, and they did so by I making wanted to things like long hair, free thinking, thinking beyond a sort of a narrow cultural band. Is that is that what they did? Oh, well, even you listen, you listen to, uh, you know, Happy Christmas, War is Over. Mm. You know, one of, one of the people that John Lennon, you know, talks about are the, is the Red Man. Mm. 
you know, and uh, with the British, we are the we are the Redmen. That was Manny Jules, former chief of British Columbia's Kamloops Band, in conversation with McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes. That's it for this week's episode. For more of your politics and power, join us next week on The Hill.